time and again, we find that the Spirit plans how the church will be nourished for us. Um, we didn't plan for that catechism to be this week and match so perfectly onto the text that the Lord has for us. But in God's good pleasure, that's what he's done. So thanks for preaching the sermon ahead of the sermon. That was fantastic. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to read the first eight verses together. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. I'll give you a moment to get there. It's up on the screen as well. Let's start in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, I ask for your help now. I ask for your spirit to shine the light of Christ on our hearts now, that he might be glorified, that we might be transformed. Would you do that for your good pleasure? Amen. So we just read eight verses uh, from 1 Thessalonians 4 that on first blush would seem to be about sexual impurity. But that's not actually the main point. Paul does talk about it, and it matters, and it's important, but that that purity, that call to holiness is downstream from what Paul's really getting at. So I want to show you in verse 1 what Paul is really talking about. So we're going to look at verse 1 again. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So that, that verse is his main point. And every sentence that follows it in the next seven verses that follow begin with the word for or therefore. And the point of that is all of those fors and therefores, they're the grounds of his argument, the proposition that he's giving, the truth that he wants you to understand, the thing he wants you to do. All the fours and the therefore are like pillars that support it. They hold it up. So we're going to start there, sort of at the headwaters, at the source, in verse 1. And we're going to look at Paul's main point, which is essentially this. You ought to please God. Just think about that for a minute. As a Christian, your life should be oriented around not pleasing yourself, not pleasing others, but pleasing God. 
And quite frankly, there are few things that could be more countercultural today than that. But there's some problems that that introduces, namely that God, as we've come to know him through scripture, has the highest possible moral standards, doesn't he? And, and so how could we possibly, broken and imperfect and weak people like me and you, how could we please a God with standards that high? How do we do that? Well, that's basically the question we're going to get at today. So let's unpack this, pretty much this, this first verse together uh, in three points. We're just going to look at what, what we should do, why we should do it, and then how on earth we actually can do it. What we should do, why we should do it, and how we can do it. So let's go. Number one, what we should do. Again, this is the thing that Paul's urging the Thessalonians. He says, I ask and I urge you. This is important for him. There's an urgency to this. It's to live for the pleasure of God. Living for God's pleasure. And now when Paul says this, this is important with what Ryan was just teaching the kids and us. Paul is presupposing the gospel here. What I mean is this, we can only please God if we have welcomed and received the gospel into our lives. So Paul's not saying, live for God's pleasure so that he will finally save you, so that he'll finally love you. Paul's actually saying, God loves you and therefore you can please him. God has saved you, therefore you can actually bring a smile to your father's face. It's freedom. So think of it like this, what if you receive, you walk to the mailbox, you open it up and there's this crumpled, torn up piece of paper inside. And you sort of uncrumple it and it's just got scribbles all over it. What would you do with that? You'd probably just throw it away. But what if your three-year-old daughter says, Daddy, I drew you a picture and I put it in the mailbox because I know how much you like to get letters. That thing, which kind of on its own terms wasn't worth anything, now because of your relationship with your child, you might save it for decades, right? It's going to hang on your fridge. It's going to bring a smile to your face every time you see it. It would bring you pleasure. You don't take pleasure in the scribbles in and of themselves. You take pleasure in the gift because it's from your child. And when we live for the God's pleasure, our crumpled drawings bring a smile to God because in Christ, you are his child. Because of Christ's death in our place, his resurrection for our justification, we're adopted into the family of God. When Christ ascends to heaven after his resurrection, he sends his spirit to dwell in you. And Paul calls that the spirit of adoption so that you can cry, Father. So Paul is presupposing the gospel. This isn't about burdening you with making God happy. It's about encouraging you with the fact that you can in Christ. But living in the pleasure of God, for the pleasure of God, is... <laughs> I wrote the word radical, and I realize now how that sounds like surfer language, <laughs> like bodacious. Uh, it is radical, though. It's radical like a revolution is radical. Living for God's pleasure is crazy to the world because this world is constantly, in a thousand ways, urging all of us 
to live for our own pleasure. We're being told a thousand times a day that, in, not in so many words, but in billions of other words, that your highest good is being authentic to your true self, right? No matter what anyone says about you, your self-expression, your living for what's inside of you, that's your ultimate good. This is Pride Month, isn't it? Isn't that what this is all about? I don't say that cheekily or shallowly either. One of the most influential philosophers that has shaped this moment in history is a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, you know, he was an 18th century philosopher. And his work, um, if you want to trace back how his thinking has left its fingerprints all over modern society, check out Carl Truman's book. Um, what's it called, Nicole? Say it again. Not that one, the other one. Yeah, yeah, the rise and triumph of the modern self. Thank you. Um, anyway, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In his book, The Social Contract, he begins with these words. First words of the book, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Man is born free and everywhere he's in chains. In other words, Rousseau is telling us that our natural, authentic self, the one you're born with, the sort of innocent, pure you, that's your ultimate good. That's the free version of you. That's what it really means to be alive. Everything else that, it, that pressures you to change and conform or alter yourself, that's slavery. That's what Rousseau is saying. So if he were to write a catechism, he might say that the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself till you die. But we say the chief end of man is what? To glorify and enjoy God forever. Those are radically different ways to approach the world. So to be converted to Christ, to become a Christian, is to go from living for self-pleasure, self-authentication, to living for God's pleasure. And frankly, those are the only two ways to live. There is no third option. Think about it. If you're living for other people's pleasure, right? We call it fear of man in Christianese often. If you're living because of fear of man, ultimately you're also just living for your own pleasure. Because when people think highly of you, then you are more pleased. There are only two ways to live, self-pleasure or God's pleasure. So the Spirit is asking us through this text the uncomfortable question and the important question today of whose pleasure are you living for? Paul drives this point home to the church in Thessalonica by laying his finger on one key spot where the Thessalonians are tempted to live for their own pleasure and not for God's. And that spot is sexual purity. Seeing someone beautiful and taking them, whether in your mind or in reality, is one of the plainest, grossest, basest expressions of living for self-pleasure. It's wicked. In verse 5, Paul says that the Gentiles who do not know God live, quote, in the passions of lust. In other words, they orient their lives around that thing inside you that says, I need that, I want that, I have to have that. That's what drives you. 
if you don't know God. That thing inside you, that epithumia, that lust, whether it's for food or money or people or whatever, it will ultimately just destroy you. But it tells you to just take what you want because it feels good, because it pleases you. Go ahead and take it. But Jesus' followers are not to live that way. In matters of sex and greed and food and everything, we are being urged here by the Spirit to orient our lives around God's pleasure and not ours. Now, I think it's worth noting, too, that there's, um, before we move to the second point, that when we're converted to Christ, it's not like we go 100%, you know, self-pleasure to 100% living for God's pleasure. One day, in the resurrection, you will have no more tug of war between your old self and this new you in Christ. But for now, in this life, read Romans 7 and tell me if that doesn't explain your existence, right? I, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So our reality is we know, like we can say with Paul, that in my heart of hearts, I want to obey God's law. I actually want to please God, but I still do some things out of the desire to please myself. So broadly, he's telling the Thessalonians, you're actually doing great, guys, like as you are doing. Like, you know, we told you how you ought to walk and to please God, and you're doing that. What he's encouraging them is to do it more and more. So to be a Christian in this world, in this moment, is to have some more and more to get into together. I think that's where we're at today as well. The same goes for us. Not to earn salvation, but because he's already done that. He's already saved us. We get the freedom and the gift and the pleasure of growing more and more in the pleasure of God. So that's what we should do. We should live for God's pleasure. Now, why should we do it? Number two, why should we live for God's pleasure? Well, when kids are, are very small, you, you know, parents ought to tell them what to do, right? Eat your vegetables. Now they lack at you know, the age two or three or four, they lack the sort of reason to even ask the why questions for a while let alone to comprehend the answers. So they just need an authority to tell them what to do. But as kids grow and mature and develop these reasoning capacities, they need to be told what to do and why to do, don't they? I have a 10-year-old. I can tell you that's true, isn't it, William? We, we need to know, like, like, sure, I'll eat my vegetables, but why does it matter? Persuade me. Convince me. Rhetorical question. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing here. Verse 1 is the what to do. Verses 2 through 8 are the why to do. So let's explore that a little bit. I'm going to give you four reasons why we should live for God's pleasure more and more from the text. It's not exhaustive, but these are four of his reasons. First, first reason, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we should seek to please God more and more because it's what God wants from us. It's his will. His desire for you is that you grow in holiness, which is what the word sanctification means. That you get to that you look more and more like Jesus as you walk through this life. That's God's will for you. Now many of us, especially young people, we spend maybe years of our life 
fretting and struggling and sweating over what is God's will for me? Does he want me to take this career path? Does he want me to marry this spouse, move to this city? It's, it's actually much simpler than that. His will is your holiness, is your sanctification, which means all you have to do is prayerfully ask, can I honor God and be Christ-like in this career? Can I look more like Jesus with this spouse? Can I live for Jesus in that city? We're invited to use our renewed, transformed minds in Christ to apply what we know of God's will to our life circumstances. It's actually very freeing. God's will for you is your sanctification. That's the first reason. The second reason why we should live for God's pleasure is so that we can live in peace together. It's very pragmatic, actually. It's very practical. Verse 6, Paul says he doesn't want anyone to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So aside from being offensive to God, Paul is saying that when the Thessalonians were, follow their lusts and live for their own self-pleasure, it, it, it wrongs and offends their brothers and sisters too. It creates an environment of anger and jealousy and envy and all of these things and oppression. And it abolishes peace and love. But God is a God of peace and God is love. And his will is not only for our holiness, but that our churches and our communities might become places of peace and love where brothers and sisters aren't wronging each other, but are actually in unity, praising God together living such beautiful lives of holiness that people look at us and go, wow, Jesus must be real. John 13 and 14, that's, that's the point of all of this. That's the kind of community we're supposed to have where people aren't sinned against, where people aren't being oppressed, where no one's being taken as an object of someone else's desire just to please themselves. So that's the second reason. God wants us to live in peace together. Third reason of why we should live for God's pleasure is a bit more serious, and it's because of God's vengeance. So Paul's a pretty good student of his Bible. He's got pretty good theology, I'd say. And he knows that time and time again in the Old Testament, God tells us and God shows us that not only is he the lifter of the lowly, but he's the avenger of the oppressed. If you're wondering whose side God is on, so to speak, if I can speak, you know, in a worldly way, on the side of the wronged, the pushed down, the crushed, the afflicted, the shamed. So if we wrong our brother and sister, God will stand up in their defense. And that should make us tremble. Look. This generation, like never before, is drenched in pornography, isn't it? It's seeped into our entertainment. It's everywhere. And some might say that just looking at a thing isn't harming anybody. And they could not be more wrong. By participating in that, by following your own pleasure like that, you are participating in and feeding a machine that turns humans into things. 
to be taken for other people's pleasure. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. I think we need to get more solemn about this as a body. Zero tolerance here in our own lives for that. We live for God's pleasure. That's what we're freed for now. Fourth reason why we should please God. I have no smooth transition from a big heavy thing to a happier thing, so just take it as it is. The fourth reason is because of love. What is love if not seeking someone else's good rather than your own pleasure? Isn't that the very definition of love? A constant commitment to say, I'm looking out for your good, not mine. I'm existing for your good and pleasure and not mine. If God were one person, right? He's not, he's Trinity. But if God were a unity, one person, then he would have to have existed forever in a self-focused, self-pleasing existence. And then if you tease out that thought, let's pretend God were one and lived forever uh, focusing on himself because there was no one else, then why did he create people in that circumstance? Well, it must be because he needs someone else to love and to focus on. And then all of a sudden, God needs you. And you follow that train of thought down. It does not end well. But God is not one person. God is Trinity. Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from eternity past, God has existed in three persons so that each person of the Trinity seeks to glorify and please the other persons. In other words, God has always been and will always be a self-contained community of love. That's why we can say God is love. You can't say someone is love if they are one person. Because love seeks someone else's good. And when we become a Christian by putting our faith in Jesus, trusting the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to save us, then God invites us into the very love of the Trinity itself. Because the Son became incarnate, which just means like put on flesh, he was, became a human, so that he might embody that love to us. He did not seek his own pleasure. He wasn't living for his own good. But he died for ours. That's love. So we seek to please God because of love. And we love him because he first loved us. And when we love someone, I think you'll all know this to be true. If love is seeking someone else's pleasure and not yours, you do that and you fix your affections on somebody. And then you please them 
their pleasure becomes your pleasure. That's why we like giving gifts at Christmas, isn't it? Like, that's why giving is better than receiving, because when someone we love is pleased, we're pleased. That's how this works. Their pleasure becomes our pleasure, and that's why we can say that the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's why we talk so much here about God's glory and our joy. The more glory God gets, the more joy we get, the more pleasure we have because we love him, because he loved us. So that's why we should do it. Number three and last point is how, how on earth can we please God? Um, you guys seen the Count of Monte Cristo, Jim Caviezel movie, 2002? Yeah. It's a good movie. Thanks. Good movie. Um, in The Count of Monte Cristo, the main character's name is Edmund. And there's this scene on a beach where the main character, Edmund, uh, has a confrontation with a condemned thief named Jacopo. So Edmund ends up rescuing Jacopo from his death sentence. Edmund shows him mercy. And when Jacopo realizes that his life has been given back to him and that he's been freed, he grabs Edmund by the beard, pulls him close, and says, I am your man forever. That's the power of the cross. The love of God in the ultimate act of seeking your good at his expense, showing you the mercy you did not deserve, giving you your life back, freeing you, that love transforms us from the sort of person who would be condemned as a thief to the sort of person who would grab Jesus and say, I'm your man forever. I'm with you. If you haven't seen the mercy and the love of Jesus bleeding for you on the execution rack you deserved, then you will never be able to please God. You won't even want to. Rousseau said that the most natural, basic, fundamental aspect of being a human is the self-survival instinct. If that's true, if that's what's most basic to fallen humanity, then what could possibly undo it? What kind of power would it take? What kind of love would it take for us to lose our life in order to gain it? What kind of a power would it take for us to stop living for our own survival and pleasure and comfort and ease and reorient our whole life around God's? for his sake and not for our sake. Because it will take power. That's not a life choice. That's a power that comes to you from outside of you, from God himself, through the gospel. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. The answer to the question, of course, is the power of God's love for us on the cross, which is the power of God unto salvation. So look to the cross with the eyes 
of faith. And that's when you can start bringing a smile to your father's face. The author of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what I mean by Paul presupposing the gospel. You have faith in Jesus, then you are saved, and therefore then you can please God. We need faith. And if you have faith in Jesus, then bring him your childish three-year-old scribbles. Please your father. He will accept your gift. He'll accept your work. And he will smile, not on the quality of your work, but on the quality of Christ. So if there's some part of your life where you're still living for your own pleasure, then I ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, live to please God. Put away the things that are killing you. Start living for him in the name of Jesus and be free. Rousseau again, man is born free everywhere he is in chains. A much better philosopher from Nazareth said, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Now, if you aren't sure if you've been freed by Jesus, then I want to say this to you, to all of us, really. God will give everyone, ultimately, what they desire. Whatever it is you most want, whatever it is that you live for, that's what you're going to get from God's hand. So if your desire is located in you, if it terminates in you, then at the end of the day, that's all you'll get. You, alone, without the common grace of God, without the kind presence of God, without hope, for anything outside of yourself, for eternity. I don't know of anything more terrifying than that. But if your desire is located in and terminates in God, he'll give you what you desire, himself, fully and freely, eternally. The problem, though, because it's like, well, that's an easy choice then, right? I can suffer or have joy. The problem is we're not as in control as we'd like to be of our hearts, of our desire factories. We can't just decide to desire a different thing. That's not how the heart works. The heart wants what it wants, as they say. So how do our desires change? At this point, I'm just repeating what I've already said, but it's that important. The answer is desires change. Hearts are replaced by the transforming power of the love of God on the cross. It's Jacopo saying to Edmund, I'm your man. It's Jean Valjean receiving mercy at the hands of the priest and then being able to live. It's Bell showing mercy to the beast and transforming him. It's the best story ever. And all of our best stories echo that story because it's the truest, most beautiful, most powerful thing that exists. Nothing can change your desires like one glimpse at the cross. So when you see Jesus suffering the wrath of God that your sins and my sins deserved in your place as your substitute, 
then you are seeing the most powerful act of love in the universe. You're seeing the greatest power. And if that stirs your heart, then there's only one thing that remains, and that's just to admit that what he's offering you as a gift, you could never earn. That you could never replace your own heart. That you could never change your desires. That you could never do the work that Christ did. Admitting that and that he deserves then your love, that's faith. That's saving faith. And when you look to Jesus with faith, he gives you that new heart. And he locates your desires in God. And then God will give you what you want, which is himself. I'm going to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity. Lewis says, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. You will. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we do desire to please you in our heart of hearts by faith. And that even crumb of a desire to bring you pleasure brings me so much encouragement because that means you've made us a new creation. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for the love that you have in yourself and invite us into. Thank you for your son's substitutionary work on the cross. Thank you for your spirit who shines the light of Christ and makes the cross beautiful to us and true. Thank you for being faithful to apply your work to us when we simply open our hands. We bring nothing to the table. Jesus has done everything.